0: Turn with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. I'm going to read verses one through six. We're going to be camping out on verse six. But here, uh, all these first six verses that we've been covering these last few weeks. Hear God's word for me and for you. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. Molasses, sawdust, feathers, community, and happiness. What do all five have in common? Let me give you a moment to think. Molasses, sawdust, feathers, community, and happiness. Think about it long enough and you might conclude that your pastor has had too much spiked eggnog this Christmas season. I assure you that's not the case. I detest eggnog. But there is a real correlation between these five items. How do you get molasses? Molasses is a byproduct of refining sugar. Sawdust is... A byproduct of the lumber industry, and feathers are a byproduct of poultry processing. So, too, in the spiritual life, there are some ideas and some pursuits that are rightly to be considered byproducts of aiming at something else, byproducts of other more central pursuits. Take the notion, before we get to the notion of happiness, take the notion of community, for instance. If you aim for community, it will always elude you. There are many people today who move from organization to organization, from one friend network to another, from one church community to another church, all in the grand pursuit of community. And I believe this to be especially the case in our beachside community and in Melbourne. People move into our towns from up north or perhaps a life change or a life circumstance makes one particularly aware of the absence of community in their lives. But then they make a typical yet nevertheless boneheaded mistake. They begin to pursue community directly. That is, they make the pursuit of community a primary goal in their life. And the corrective I would offer today is this. Community, rightly considered, is a byproduct of aiming and pursuing something else. Community is cultivated through loving and serving Others. Think about Mother Teresa for a moment. She created a community not by pursuing community, but rather by loving and serving others. And eventually there arose around Mother Teresa an unbelievable, extraordinary global community. People would flock from all four corners of our globe to be a part of this incredible community which was cultivated not by longing for, not by wanting, not by desiring community itself. It arose from loving and serving others. And so I love what Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says. He says, you don't find community, you create it through love. If you are desperate for community... Begin by loving and serving those around you. Instinctively, Paul Miller says, we hunt for a church or community that makes us feel good. It is good to be in a place where you're welcome. But then he says, making that quest central is idolatry. And like all idolatry, it ultimately disappoints. But if we pursue Hesed love, a covenantal sacrificial love that comes from God, then wherever we go, he says, we create community. And then he gives us two different formulas for community formation. First is that I search for a community where I feel loved. The result is that you become disappointed with that community. If you make community your primary pursuit, if you make finding a place where I feel loved, you'll ultimately end in disappointment in that community. But if you begin to show hesed love, a sacrificial way of loving and serving others, then what is the result that then you begin to create community? And the same holds true for intimacy in marriage. Intimacy, of course, being a form of close community, but in the context of marriage. And so for the husband or wife who pursues intimacy directly, that person will often come across as pushy and demanding. Indeed, the entire battle in marriage can be summarized like this. Can you delight to love more than you long to be loved? Can you delight to love the other, to serve the other more than you long to be loved? This is the kind of heart attitude that brings intimacy back into the heart of a marriage. And this is the battle that you say where Jesus must enter. Only Jesus can help you love and serve your spouse. This is what the only thing that you can control. You can only control loving and serving the other. You can never control how much or how or in the way that you receive love. And so we often pursue intimacy when we should be pursuing loving love the other person. And so we begin to understand that community and intimacy for that matter are byproducts of love, are byproducts of serving the other. How do you form community at this institution called the church? Look for ever increasing ways to love and serve others. In the words of John F. Kennedy, Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. You didn't know he was such a great theologian. Therein, I tell you, lies the secret of forming a healthy community at the church. I also mentioned the idea of happiness alongside molasses and feathers and sawdust. And so, like the direct pursuit of community, which is basically the idolatry of wanting to be loved more than wanting to love, there is a sense that happiness always eludes us if we make happiness our central, all encompassing goal in life. Now, many of you know that I love to follow the NBA. In March of this year, Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, Turn heads when he said this. And there's actually one word missing that changes the whole thing. I, fell, I saw this at 8 o'clock service. But anyway, he said, When I meet with them, what surprises me is that they're not truly happy. This is the NBA commissioner talking about famous multi million dollar athletes who play a game for a living. They have the nicest suits, they have the nicest watches, they have the nicest cars, they have the nicest houses. They take naps in the middle of the day. (laughs) Now this seems like a pretty good life to me. But I wonder, is it because they are not truly happy because they've never understood the biblical law of happiness? That happiness can never be pursued directly, but rather it is a byproduct of another more central pursuit in life. And so when we come to the fourth beatitude, note what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying happy are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Jesus is not saying blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessings. Jesus recognizes and really asks us to recognize that blessedness and happiness are in fact byproducts of pursuing something greater and more central with our lives. Before we get to what that entails, let me give you four different questions. The first is very simple, but if you miss this, you're going to miss the entire Beatitudes. What is blessedness. As many of you know, the word makarios in the Greek is typically translated blessed are, blessed are. Jesus uses this word nine times to begin the Sermon on the Mount. Though some translations get risky and they begin to render the word happy are like the common English Bible, today's English version of the Bible and J.B. Phillips' Paraphrase, But many theologians, if you really twist their arms, would confess a kind of uneasiness with both translations. Makarios, though not wrong if we translated happiness, seems too superficial. And Makarios, as blessed, seems well too canned religious jargon. And so Friday afternoon, every time I get in a, in a crunch... On Friday afternoon, where do I go? I go to my wife. And I start to ask her, Makarios, I'm trying to wrestle. Is this blessed? Is this happy? What do you think? And she says, does it mean a holy happiness? And I said, Lisa, that's good. That's good. And so when often I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, it often sounds a lot like my wife. It doesn't help us either that our society also seems deeply confused about what constitutes a blessed life. In our day, hashtag blessed is getting thrown about quite a lot. Nice family photo, hashtag blessed. Nice turkey dinner, hashtag blessed. Kid with good grades holding his report card, hashtag blessed, right? Right? unexpected new car hashtag blessed is this what our world says is blessed or is this actually the blessedness the new testament in visions and what are we to make of the beatitudes in which these kinds of blessings, nice life, nice car, nice kids, nice job, nice friends, nice accomplishments are nowhere to be found, but rather blessedness is being described by Jesus in starkly and vastly different ways. And so as we come to Beatitudes, one of the aims of Jesus, I think, is to make us pause, to make us reevaluate, to make us radically rethink what constitutes a blessed life. And so if the makarios sayings, if the blessed sayings and the beatitude are still sort of cloudy, let's go to the rest of the New Testament. Use this same very word. Consider these verses. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed, the same word used in the Beatitudes, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What do these blessings look like? For me, it seems that in the New Testament, blessing seems to be connected to whatever gets you closer to Jesus. Forgiven by God, closer to Jesus. You obey the word of God, closer to Jesus. You remain steadfast under trial. It always brings you closer to Jesus. Dying in the Lord. Being invited to the heavenly supper, closer yet to Jesus. Then consider this. One author says, one translation of the New Testament The ESV, our own translation we we use in our church, has 112 references with the words bless, blessing, or blessed, none of which connects blessing to material prosperity. What does that begin to tell you? What it begins to tell me is that there seems to be a narrowing of the concept of blessedness in the New Testament to be radically centered upon Jesus. And so a third way to get at this, what does makarios, this this blessed happiness, this holy happiness mean in the Beatitudes, is to go the very next time the word is used in Matthew outside the Sermon on the Mount, which would be Matthew chapter 11. Matthew writes this, Now when John heard in prison, this is John the Baptist, about the deeds of the Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He could have stopped right there, but he doesn't. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And you begin to ask, what kind of blessing is that? Jesus says, blessed is anyone who is not offended or scandalized on account of me. Blessed is anyone who sees what Jesus is doing and recognizes the new age of the kingdom of God. There's also a wisdom component of this blessing. Blessed is a life that orders its joy and its hope on these signs that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus. And so Makarios for me connotes this. A deep satisfaction based on seeing in Jesus the kingdom of God and reordering all of life based on this revolutionary truth. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So said C.S. Lewis. And so have you truly understood? Have I truly understood? Have we truly understood the radical way in which Jesus redefines the blessed life? Or are we simply taking the world's definition of blessings and then going to the New Testament and trying to lay this over the pages of the New Testament. How about you? When you count your blessings, when you count them one by one, as the old gospel song put it, how many of those blessings are directly connected to Jesus and the kingdom? That is, let me try to be as convicting as the New Testament is convicting about the word makarios, let me say three things that we often haven't understood. We haven't often understood that blessed is a covenantal word. This is where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is at the heart of what it means to live a blessed life. Second, we often haven't understood that blessed is an eschatological word. That is that you don't get all your blessings now. Some are reserved until later. Some are reserved until what? The eschaton, until the last days. Six of the eight beatitudes are future in their orientation. Look at them really quickly. Blessed are those who mourn, for they what? Shall or will be filled. They will be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. And they shall be called sons of God. All future in their orientation. In fact, there are two that are in the present tense. The first and the eighth. Where Jesus says, for theirs what? Is the kingdom. But then what? The kingdom of heaven. So even then, there is a future orientation to the blessed life. And third, and this is where my study this week took me, in the New Testament, we often haven't understood that when we come to the New Testament, blessed is a radically, deeply seated Jesus word. That is all the blessings in life flow in and from the heart of Jesus to you. Second question, what about the structure of the Beatitudes? What does this tell us about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? There are some who, in their interpretation of the Beatitudes, love to divide these Beatitudes into two tables of four. That is, the first four being God-centered, the next four being more horizontal or uh, in nature towards others. For my part, I like to see the eighth Beatitude, which is what: "Blessed are you who are persecuted because of." righteousness as being the end result of living out the previous seven beatitudes. And so this fourth beatitude, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, becomes a central pivotal beatitude, sort of like the pinnacle of a mountain in which the first three beatitudes are wanting us to ascend to the heights. I recognize a poverty of spirit when I continually mourn for my sin. When I recognize there is a meekness in me before God and before others, then there bursts in me, there bursts inside my soul, a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness and a longing to be satisfied and filled by God alone. And then from the other side of this beatitude, descending from the heights, from the fourth beatitude, there descends righteous living. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. There also is a correspondence between the two different sides of this fourth beatitude. Take the first beatitude. There's a poverty of spirit, which allows you what? To cry out to God for mercy. Which then, descending from the mountain, leads you to be merciful to others. There's a continuous mourning for your sin, which leads to a purity of heart that leads you wanting to see God. There's a meekness before God and others that eventually leads you to being a peacemaker to those around you. So there's something about the structure of the Beatitudes that points to something central and pivotal about this fourth Beatitude. So much so that there might be another sermon on this very same one, Just next week. We'll see. Third question. Let's get back to the main question. What is blessedness the byproduct of? Remember the law. The first law. The only law of happiness. Seek it directly. And you're bound to live a discontented life. Some seek happiness through wealth and power. Others through marriage and family. Others through accomplishments and accolades. Others seek happiness through friendship and experiences. And at the 8 o'clock service, I was truly overwhelmed because I started to think my own life. Actually, those are all ways that I presently and in the past all have sought happiness. My own sermon convicting me. This is not supposed to happen, is it? But Jesus says there's only one way to seek happiness. And that is to put holiness before happiness. A blessed, holy happiness is the byproduct of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so how do we apply this to our lives? We apply it in this way. Whenever you are feeling discontented in life. Whenever you arrive at that melancholy place of wondering what life is all about. Am I really doing and living life how I should do and live life? When you find yourself agreeing with Thomas Sazer who said, happiness is an imaginary condition formerly attributed by the living to the dead, now usually attributed by adults to children and by children to adults. Do you get that? People are living say, oh, the person in the casket, he must have lived... A happy life. Parents look at their children and say. Oh I remember my childhood. My kid is. They're so happy. Children just look up at their adults and say. When I get to be an adult. That will make me so happy. Happiness is the one commodity in life. Where everyone thinks. Everyone else has this commodity. More than you do. And so when you come to that place. Of trying to figure out what can make my life truly happy. The fourth beatitude tells you this, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happiness and blessedness is the byproduct of doing that. Holiness before happiness. But that's not the entire good news. The good news of Jesus is that the more holiness you have, the more happiness is characterizing your life in the kingdom of God. Last question. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why is this so pivotal to our lives? Let me leave you with an image. My grandfather on my dad's side, Grandpa Ray, passed away from cancer when I was 16 years old, a sophomore in high school. But that was only after a long and hard fight with cancer. So even at nine or ten years old, I began to hear things being whispered by the adults in my life, namely Aunt Sandra and my own father, Steve. And they used to say things indirectly, things that I couldn't quite understand and only later would put together in my life. When Grandpa Ray was in the hospital... They mostly talked about the food, my aunt and my father. They would often say things like this, the food is tasting good for him today. Or conversely, the food isn't tasting so good for grandpa. And slowly I began to understand through my own childhood lenses, filtering it through my nine or ten-year-old mind, I began to understand sort of this indirect language, namely that when food was tasting good to Grandpa, there was life, there was health and there was hope. At the same time, when the food be- wasn't tasting good to Grandpa, there was decline and there was elements of death and the cancer. In other words, as my grandpa's appetite for food and drink went, so too went his life and his health. If he had a good appetite, if he was hungering and thirsting, that was a good sign. The bad sign was when he had no appetite, when there was no appetite for food and drink, he would then lose weight and he would then decline. So literally the signs of life and death for my grandpa Ray could be seen in this way. How can we describe his appetite? A good appetite led to life. Good appetite led to health. Good appetite led to living well in this world. And the question for you to consider this morning is this. If a spiritual doctor visited you, how would they describe your spiritual appetite? What would they say? Would they say he has a good appetite? Would the spiritual doctors say she loves to feed on Christ? He loves to feed on his word. She is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Or would the spiritual doctors say this? Well, my aunt and what my father often said about my grandfather on too many occasions, he just doesn't have an appetite today. I see him declining and getting weaker. She doesn't really have an appetite. Those are signs of danger and decline and eventually death. And so the good news, and there is good news in these Beatitudes, and it's this, there is still time to develop an appetite that leads to a blessed life, that leads to a holy happiness in the life. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he was at the end of his life, there was still time For Paul, there's still time for me. There's still time for you to develop this holy appetite for thirsting and hungering for righteousness. Paul could have said, I've done so much for the kingdom. Paul could have said, I have planted so many churches. I've discipled so many new believers. I have written so many letters. I have suffered so much for the kingdom of God. So the question is, did Paul battle in his soul? Did Paul battle even people close to him who wanted to counsel him? Paul, just be thankful. Be thankful for all that you've done. Paul, remember your prior zealousness, which used to characterize your life. What did Paul say? The church in Philippi at the end of his life. I want to know Christ. Power of his resurrection. Even participating in his sufferings. Becoming like him unto his death. Paul hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And blessed are those who, like Paul, hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. They will be filled. So the good news is this. It's never too late to cultivate this kind of hunger. It's never too late to turn your life around it's not too late to experience a feeling and a satisfaction from God like you've never experienced before blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness jesus is asking us to reconsider what a blessed life truly looks like let's pray Jesus, thank you that you showed us the way. We remember you in the wilderness. Even as a son of God, you pursued the Father. You wanted nothing to break that right relationship that you had with the Father. And thus, the Holy Spirit was heavy upon your life. You hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Help us to follow you, son of God. Thank you for this Christmas season. Remind us, the Apostle Paul, who even at the end of his life, when he could have sat back on his laurels, where he could have rested, he wanted to rest on you. He wanted to know Christ. All God's people said, Amen. Let it be so.